0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Um, there's there's a lot that I want to talk about. We we've got amazing teachings from the from the parsha itself, and also it's Hanukkah, and uh, so so a lot of ground to cover. Plus, I want to tell you a a couple of stories that happened to me over the last week. Uh, something interesting at work, and then something uh, just sort of a, another crazy coincidence type story. Um, so for the for the chronicles, um, but anyway, let's. Uh, let's jump in you know uh, we were just mentioning Siberia a moment ago so so let me just tell you just something from uh, from my wife's family just uh, a story just because uh, it just feels like this is this is kind of life all rolled up into one story um, my wife's uh, grandmother uh, was in uh, Poland and there during World War two there was a there was an opportunity where basically the Russian army was there and the German army was there. And and it wasn't always so clear which which way if you were a civilian especially if you were Jewish which which camp you were going to fall into. And it seemed on the surface of things that the Russians were a lot more barbaric at least at this stage in the war and that maybe it's better to go with the Germans. It wasn't clear and so my uh, wife's grandmother just had a strong intuition that the side to go to is the Russian side. And she tried to rally as many people within the place that she lived to go with the Russians. And they went with the Russians. And I think she was able, successful in bringing the other people over to the Russians... But the, here's the point: Where did they end up? In Siberia. And Siberia is, of course, one of the most forbidding places in the entire universe. I mean, it's 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 the, the winters of Siberia are, are are legendary, you know, for being completely uninhabitable. So so what's what's the point? The point is is that that saved their life, and they must have been thinking at the time: Why did we listen to this woman? who took us to Siberia in the wintertime. Like, this could not have been the proper choice. And yet we see that their lives were saved for for this very reason. So when we go through life, sometimes it's sort of like, you know, sometimes people want to say in in a flip, glib way, huh, could be worse. But you know what? It really could be worse. It's not a joke. It could be way worse. Way worse. And so... So this story always is like seems to me a very good model of that. That who knows, you know, a lot of times I'm stuck in traffic, I'm late, everything like that. There's a lot of anxiety. And then I think to myself, how do, how, how do I know at this moment Hashem isn't saving my life? You know, there's just countless versions of that. And sometimes in the most minor, annoying, mundane ways, miracles are being transacted. And the Gemara itself taps into this psychology, and they say that that, that they appreciate the fact that people aren't aware of the fact that a miracle is being performed for them while it's being performed. That's an extraordinary insight, because we tend to think of the only authentic, legitimate miracle moments as, I'm standing before the Red Sea and the Egyptians are coming at me with all their chariots, and all of a sudden the sea splits. That's a miracle. But you know what a miracle often is? Is that you get to the Greyhound bus station, and the sign says, oh, the bus has been delayed three hours, or the three o'clock is canceled, the next one is the six o'clock. And that's a splitting of the Red Sea moment for you. In other words, miracles don't manifest themselves as miracles. Miracles. While they're going on, the ninety-nine percent of the time. Anyway, so so let's look into the parsha, and then we'll talk about Hanukkah a little bit. And there's a teaching that I learned yesterday, a medrash, that that I really liked. And when when I tell you what the teaching is, just on the simple level, you'll go like, "Well, that just sounds like a bummer." Like what's What's, what's interesting about this what's, what's interesting about this medrash? It just sounds like a downer. What it is, is, is that um, Yosef, when the brothers say to Yosef, our father, your servant, they refer to, because they don't know, remember, that Yosef is their brother. They think he's this, you know, hostile personality, this dictator, basically. And so when they reference their father, they have to be incredibly solicitous. So when they refer to Yaakov, they say, our father, your servant. And they say that to him something like 10 times. And so now listen to this. The Medrash says, because the Medrash wants to account, the rabbis want to understand why Yosef lived, relative to his brothers, a shorter number of years. And so one of the accountings, there are a couple of ways that they account for this. But one part of the accounting of why Yosef's life was shortened is because when he heard Yaakov Avinu, Yosef's father, referred to him as his servant and didn't stop them, he lost a year of his life each time. So that's ten years lost just in that chunk. That's just one of the accountings of understanding the shortage of years that Yosef lived. So now, you can ask a couple of questions. One question you can ask is, what was Yosef supposed to say? I mean, he's undercover, right? You know, what was he supposed to say? Say, wait a second, you know, my, my, that's, your father is not my servant. Your father is my father of Yosef. That, that blows the entire enterprise, doesn't it? So you can say, well, what did they expect of him? How, how, how could he not have allowed that to happen? It's not fair. This is not fair that you say that he lost a year of his life for every one of these references. But I told you, I started off by telling you this teaching, by telling you that I really like this teaching a lot. And let me tell you why I like this teaching. Because, you see, a lot of people learn the story of Yosef. And I think all of us fall into this category at one point in our life and go, man, Yosef was really hard on them. What was going on with Yosef? Yosef was, no, that's too much. I wouldn't have gone that far. I would not have gone that far. You know? Or, outright antipathy toward Yosef. Like, he shouldn't have done any of that. Alright. Alright, so here's the point. Here's the point. And really, this is a teaching about God. You see, God is handling all of our lives and all of our accounts simultaneously. And no one escapes judgment. No one escapes the eyes of God. And so while Yosef is going through these motions of bringing his brothers to Tshuva, which was a good thing for him to be doing. You know, everyone says it's a good thing. He brought them to this place of Tshuva and all the rest, and, and that's great. But from this teaching what you learn is that Yosef was also being examined on how he went about it. And that he didn't escape judgment during the process of bringing his brothers to Chuba. That's the point. That he's also included in, in, in all the accounts and all the supervision of the world that God is doing. So what could Yosef have, have done? He could have said, in character, remaining in character, you're, you you say your father is my servant. I'm, and this is just me talking as a screenwriter right now. You're, you say your father is my servant. Your father never met me. He doesn't know me. How could he be my servant? And he could have just nipped it in the butt. You see? So what was the test? What was the test actually? Not that he just allowed a um, a turn of phrase to stand in the air. That's not it. You see... God is refining us constantly, and especially as one grows in spiritual levels. Little aspects of refinement are not little things at all. You know, I, I once heard Rabbi Beryl Wein say, more than once actually, several times, and this is kind of a hard teaching to wrap your mind around. So you have to really contemplate this, because this is, this is a big teaching. He said, it's easier to go from zero to 75% in terms of being a, an Evid Hashem, someone who's really trying to serve God with all of their heart. It's easier to go from 0 to 75% than 75% to 100 You would think, well, wait a second. You know, because what happens is, you know, if you want to apply the laws of physics, the, the, the laws of gravity and friction, right, because why Why is it when I roll a ball down the street, why doesn't it go forever? Theoretically, it should go forever, right? Because at a certain point, there's friction. And friction slows something down. And then it brings it to a halt. And you know something? The same happens in the physics of spirituality. A person rises, and they rise. And they can even go from having no background whatsoever to all of a sudden I'm keeping this, that, and the other thing. Awesome. Alright, but then all of a sudden the friction hits him. It's like it's sort of like, yeah, but you know something to take that on. Eh. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So this is the this is the idea. Well, isn't it the same God who asked you to do this thing? Yeah, it's the same God who asked you to do this thing. And aren't you doing that thing? Yeah, I'm doing that thing. Well, what about this thing? Yeah. Tard. Tard. So that's what Rabbi Wein was saying, that it's easier to go from zero to seventy-five percent than seventy-five percent to a hundred. Very interesting teaching. And and uh, so but let's get back to what I would like to suggest. I'm trying to explain this midrash. What was actually being tested of Yosef? I mean, it wasn't just a random thing. In other words, Let's recap. While Yosef was a vehicle for Hashem to test the brothers and bring the brothers to a place, you know, Yosef also has a separate account with God in terms of his own spiritual growth. The, he doesn't escape. He doesn't have an exemption. So, what was his test? Ah, so I'd like to suggest the following. His test is, "Oh, Yosef, you're so great, Mashiach bin Yosef. You're so great." You're, you went from being a slave to running the greatest ancient kingdom in world history? You're so great? Are you greater than your father? Maybe you think you are greater than your father. You know? So well, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna have your brothers refer to. We're gonna have your brothers refer to our father, Yaakov, as your servant. And you know what? They're not even going to know if you don't correct them. <laughs> just going to be your own little secret inside your own heart, where you actually believe that you are greater than Yaakov. And as great as Yosef was, he's not greater than Yaakov. That's just that's just what it is. So so that was his test. That was his test. And and what's so extraordinary about it is that. He's not going to be caught. But now we go back to the Medrash. Every single time it was said and he didn't say something in response, a year came off of his life. So, do you see how Hashem runs the world? And do you see how everyone is in play? Everyone's in play. So you say, well, I'm keeping Shabbos. So I'm walking up to someone who's not keeping Shabbos and I'm talking to him about Shabbos. But maybe I talk to him in a way that's, that's sort of like you know, in a way that's not proper, a way that's not nice, in a way that's not respectful. So who's being, what, I'm exempt from judgment just because I'm representing God in, at that moment? Or at least I'm trying to? Right? Somehow I escape judgment at that moment? No. And you see that very clearly from the story of Yosef here, from this teaching. That's why I like it. That's why I like it. Everyone is in play, you know? Parents and children, you want to discipline your children, and you're the parent? You know what? You're in play also. It's not just the child. Okay. So now, I want to go deeper into this idea now, and and how we think about ourselves, right? And because we're all works in progress, and all of us have our ups and downs, and all of us are human beings. So, how do we How do we wrap our mind around our own spiritual growth or lack thereof? Again, this sort of 0 to 75, 75 to 100. How How do we understand that in terms of our own growth? Because we have to keep on growing. We have to. We have to. Remember, Hashem is infinite. The soul He puts inside of us is an aspect of His infinity. To create parameters and barriers around it is no good. It has to grow because that's its natural state. I heard someone say in the name of the Zohar something very interesting. They were talking about the source of sickness. And they were saying that that basically there's a a divine flow that's coming down to a person at all times. And the Zohar likens it to a stream that's dammed up, right? Meaning to say that there's a wall blocking the flow of water and that if the dam if the waters of the dam just sit there and stagnate we know that that water becomes really bad it becomes you know like malarious all sorts of terrible things start to set into those waters because they're stagnant so a divine flow comes down into a person if that divine flow gets all bottled up inside of the person and it doesn't have a chance to express itself In terms of chesed, kindness. In terms of singing. We have to sing. You know? In terms of all sorts of things. Then it gets bottled up inside of us and that, the Zohar says, is a source of disease. Very, very fascinating idea. You know? So we have to be within this flow. That's the important thing. Because if you think of like, if you shake up a bottle of Coke and you've got your Thumb over the top. It just, it'll, the, the thing explodes if, 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 if you don't have a chance to have an outlet. So, so we have to understand that, that that works with ourselves as well. Okay, so now again, in terms of understanding our own growth and everything like this. So, very interesting, Paro's dream. And I heard this from um, the first part of this anyway, the, 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 the foundation of the nugget that I'm about to say is from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Shlita. He's one of the greatest rabbis in the world. And, um, you know, if you look at Yosef's, uh, Paro's dreams, very interesting because there's the Torah account of his dream, and then there's the account of how he related it to Yosef. And there are all sorts of changes in it. So it seems to me, anyway, that the more authentic version of it is the initial one, because that's the one God is reporting, right? That's the, that's the initial one, not the telling of the one, okay? So in any, any terms of changes, they're, they're very instructive. You can zero in on them. So let's look at the very first one over here. It says, It happened at the end of two years to the day, Pharaoh was dreaming, Pharaoh was dreaming, that behold, he was standing over the river, Okay, so it says the Hine made Al Hayor. He was standing Al on Al means an, he was standing on the river. Now later on when he recounts this dream to Yosef, he says, I was standing Al on the banks of the river. Changes it. So what is this thing? I'm standing on top of the river. So, from this you see the essence of the nature of Avodah Zorah, of idol worship, what the true dynamic of idol worship is. So Rabbi Shapiro says, that points out, as is widely known, that the Nile was a god in Egyptian society. And from the pagan standpoint, it makes sense, because the Nile would overflow, and it would fertilize all the crops, and food would come from it, so seemingly you know, it was the source of life. So they worshipped it as a god. So here you see, Pharaoh is standing on top of the Nile. In other words, he's making a god out of himself. Because I am above this god. Meaning to say, I am a god. And Rabbi Shapiro points out that this is the spiritual dynamic inherent in all idol worship. As much as it looks like the person is bowing before a statue and and sort of like uh, making themselves small to the idol. That might be the external appearance of it. What idol worship really does is it makes the person himself into a god. Because the person is choosing this idol. The person is choosing this idol. So therefore, they're putting themselves above the Nile, if you will. So with this in mind with this in mind we have to all ask ourselves a question in terms of all of our growth and all of our relationship with God is that if there's something that I'm doing, not doing if there's some mitzvah or mitzvahs whatever it is if there's something that I'm not doing is it because I'm just not there yet? Meaning to say I... I'm a work in progress. And if that's the case, fantastic. That's, that's great. That's all of us. Or, big or, or is it that I've decided that that doesn't apply to me because I'm the final authority? And it's just that, no, not that one. Not that one. That one's wrong. And on the outward level, it can look at this like the exact same thing. This person's not doing it, and this person's not doing it. But this person's not doing it because they're not there yet, and they're striving toward it in their own time. Or this person's not doing it because they've decided, you know what, this mitzvah doesn't apply to me, because I know better, because I'm the final authority. That's a very, that's a very searing question. That we have to ask ourselves in terms of our practice. And if we look at something that, 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 that we're not doing. And the, and the thing is, is I, and, and we answer, you know what, I'm not doing that because I don't understand it. Then a person should learn it. Or if I'm not doing it because it's too hard for me. Then there's a, a very interesting ATSA. Which is given, after that in whose name, in someone's great's name which is that one of the um, pieces of his uh, advice from the chachamim, from the sages, is that if you're having trouble with a particular mitzvah, learn the halachas of that mitzvah. And you know, a lot of people, um, let's say they're experiencing an ache or a pain physically, a lot of people, the last thing they want to do is go to a doctor. Because <laughs> maybe the doctor will say that this, that this is my worst fear is being confirmed, right? God forbid, right? So there's almost that same psychological dynamic in terms of learning about a mitzvah. I'm not doing this mitzvah. The last thing I want to do is learn about this mitzvah. But the opposite actually is true. When you actually de- learn learn about it, and you learn the, the pratim, the, the details of the mitzvah, you actually demystify it. And, it and, and you break it down into parts. Because every mitzvah, the way it's brought in halacha, it's broken down into parts. And then you go, okay, you know what? Okay, I can do this part of it at least. Or that's all it is. Because a a lot of times there's sort of like this boogeyman quality, this sort of like emotional, irrational thing that attaches itself to a certain mitzvah. And then that scares us. But when we actually see it, when, when the lights get turned on, so to speak, we go, oh, that's all it is? All right, well, I can do that. Or I can begin to do that. Okay. Now, I want to switch gears and do just another teaching from, uh, about Yosef. And then we'll talk more about Hanukkah. I want to tell you these stories. So, so, so in terms of, in terms of Yosef. So I learned from my father-in-law, all Shalom. Um, Shalom Yishua ben Reb Moshe. Shalom Yishua that the the word mazel is an acronym for makom zman lasas. I'll explain what that means in a moment. Mazel, which is translated as destiny or sometimes luck, whatever it is, it's it's deeper than that. But but um, that that mazel, you see a perfect example of mazel in terms of. Yosef's rise to fortune. And what I mean by that, and we'll we'll revisit the word in a moment to see it, is that Yosef interprets Paro's dream, and then there's this amazing turning point. First he tells him, look, the seven fat cows, that's seven good years. They're eaten up by seven skinny cows, and they don't get any fatter. That's seven bad years. And the fact that you had both dreams simultaneously means the period of the first seven years is about to begin right away. So, and then the wheat also, it's the same dream, the corn. So Yosef interprets the dream. That's all he was asked to do is interpret the dream. But now listen to this next passage. This is passage, chapter 41, verse 33. Now this is right after, right after he interprets the dream. Yosef says, Now look, Pharaoh seek out a discerning and wise man and set him him over the land of Egypt. (laughs) Pharaoh didn't ask him what to do about the dream. He didn't ask him for any advice on how to enact the dream. But what's awesome here is that Yosef understands that he's been given an opportunity and seizes the moment. That's Yosef coming into play. See, a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people just think that all of a sudden, Mazel kicked in. You know, he was always destined for greatness. So, okay, it took longer, and because he's one of the avos, he had a particularly traumatic life, and he gets out of jail. And then God decided this is the time, and now all of a sudden I'm going to make him king. That's not what this says. That's not what happened. Now, let's see it in the word Mazel. Mazel is mem, makom, means place. Zion, Zman, means time. Meaning, you have to be at the right place, at the right time, and now, here comes the real teaching. Lamed stands for lassos. You have to do something. It's not just enough to be in the right place at the right time. You have to be in the right place at the right time, and then you have to do something. That's what Yosef does. A perfect example of it. He sensed, this is weird, this is so unusual. I'm being brought... And also, just from a biographical standpoint, I just love this detail. You can imagine he's been in jail for I think it's twelve years, something like that. Twelve years, and all of a sudden, the, the secularly speaking, the king of the known world calls you for a private audience. And they, it says that they rushed him, and he says, "Excuse me, I want to take a shower. I want to shave. I want to change my garments." <laughs> I mean, that's, you talk about poise, you talk about self mastery, that's awesome. It's awesome. He just, like, you know, Yosef, this is a man who's about to really score big. So when you understand that that was the backdrop before he even interprets the dream, I mean, this person has positioned himself for success at this moment and then just seizes the moment, you know? So you just see it in his psychology and his personality just in the moments before he actually creates this job for himself as ruler of Egypt. It teaches you to dress for success,
1: too.
0: You put on a suit, you're not Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, okay, so that's, that's, that's Mosul. So, now let me just, uh, I want to share some, some, some Hanukkah ideas. But before I do, I, I just want to um I want to tell you a story that um that happened to me this uh era of Shabbos. It was uh, just just uh day before yesterday. So I learned the teaching, you know, uh, and I have a great uh gamatria to share, God willing. We'll we'll will have time for that. Um actually maybe maybe we should do that right now. Okay. So let me just do this Gabatria with you because, because I love it, and um, and uh, and it's in keeping with with the parshas that we're reading. So, so basically, basically, this to me is one of the great midrashim, and we all have to know this Midrash. We have to have it like. As Reb Shlomo would often say, you have to carve it into your heart. You have to carve this medrash into your heart. Okay? So basically, what happened right before Yosef gets sold into slavery is, you know, it's really, it's really tragic. By the way, I heard from Reb Shlomo, I heard this with my own ears, that, you see, Yehuda, Yehuda has a downfall. And we're going to talk about Yehuda in a moment. And Rashi brings later on something that's just devastating. And again, this applies to all of us in our own lives. The brothers turn to Yehuda, and they say to him, Had you said not to sell Yosef, we wouldn't have done it. Why didn't you just tell us not to do it? Can you imagine? It makes you want to cry. It makes you want to cry We would have listened to you. How many of us in our own lives are afraid to say something because we think, he's never going to listen to me, she's never going to listen to me, it's useless, whatever it is. All right, you have to choose your words properly and you have to pick the right time and everything like that. You know, it's complicated. I I get it. This is not such an easy thing to do. It certainly wasn't easy for Yehuda because Yehuda didn't say it. And Yehuda was a very great person and he didn't say it. But nonetheless, the teaching is still accurate. And that's, had he said, don't sell Yosef, the brothers tell him, we would have listened to you! So Yosef is sold into slavery. And Reb Shlomo said that at that moment, right as he's being sold into slavery, Yehuda blessed Yosef and Yosef blessed Yehuda. Yehuda blessed Yosef. That he should always remain at Tzaddik. And and Yosef, less Yehuda, that he should do tshuva. That he should become a master of tshuva. And of course, here you have this paradigm of Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben, ben David coming together in this awesome, in this awesome way. You see, what's so interesting, what's so, this was one of the major themes that Reb Shlomo taught. I heard him say this at least a dozen times is that you would think intuitively that Mashiach should come from the person who never made a mistake, from that line. And yet, Mashiach comes from Mashiach ben David, from Yehuda, from the person who makes a lot of mistakes, but gets his act together. And that's where the Messianic line comes from, the ultimate Messianic line. So, so now, this is, this is taking place now, Right after the event that I described, Yosef has now been sold into slavery, and all of a sudden the narrative of the Torah switches. And now all of a sudden we're talking about Yehuda. And it says, Vayhi Bei the Vayarid Yehuda. It was at that time that Yehuda went down. Now they're talking about in the, from his brothers and turned away toward, uh, an Adulamite man whose name was Hira. This is chapter 38, verse 1. So, what does it mean he went down? It means he was demoted by his brothers. He was demoted. And, um, and everything's falling apart at this point. The whole destiny of the world is falling apart at this point. Because the brothers now have like completely broken seemingly, irrevocably. The whole mission of Yaakov now is in the trash can. Yitzhak, Abraham. It's all falling apart right now. Okay? Now listen to what the Medrash says. Okay? Okay. And on the words, and it was in that time, that's the opening words of this now section of, of, of Yehuda. Now, just, just in case you don't know, let me just summarize what, what's about to happen. Yehuda goes and he gets married. And he has three kids. The first two, and, and they mar- the, the, the eldest marries a woman named Tamar. It's this awesome Sadacus, awesome, right? Holy woman. And her husband, the first husband dies, then they marry her to the second husband, the, the second son of Yehuda. He dies. Then there's the third one. And Yehuda's like, I'm not marrying you to my third son. And the age thing didn't quite work out, anyways. I'm not marrying you to forget it. So she's basically left in the lurch. So she's kind of like in suspended animation. Like, what's she going to do with her life right now, you know? And then what happens is she dresses herself up, she disguises herself. As a harlot. And she sits at the crossroads in this road. And now Yehuda sees her. And she's disguised. Her face is covered. Thinks she's a harlot. He is with her. And she has twins. Including Peretz. Who is the great ancestor of King David. So the messianic line comes from this encounter. Now, interestingly, I just want to add a P.S. to this. I just think it's striking that she's sitting at the crossroads. Right? So the crossroads means you can go this way or you can go this way. But if you're sitting at the crossroads, whichever way you go, you're going to pass her. Meaning to say that when God wants to bring something into the world, you can turn this way or you can turn that way. Either way, you're going to encounter your fate. So, and meaning in the in the greatest sense, that God is bringing redemption into the world. Now, by the way, another PS, which is that we know that the messianic lineage when you look in the Torah is is quite weird. You know, you've got Lot with one of his daughters having Moab. Moab, of course, is the progenitor of Rus, who's the progenitor of David Melith on one side, so there's that relationship, which is creepy and strange, you know. And then you've got, although seemingly, you know, they thought they were the last people in the world, so, you know, there are ways to rationalize it. But, but nonetheless, it is odd that the the ultimate human being should come from, from a, a relationship like that. And here you have another chapter where it's you have Yehuda going and, and going to seemingly a harlot for, for hire, and it's coming out of her. It's like, what's... What's going on? And so what I would like to suggest is that we have to understand that, you know, we talk about Melech HaMashiach, which would be translated as King Mashiach, right? That's not just an honorific title. Just you should understand that we've had kings in Israel. King David. Shalom HaMelech, King Solomon. So when the Jewish people have their act together, and we've got a Sanhedrin, and we're in the land, and everything's in a good place... We have a king also. The Mashiach, the savior of the world, will be a king of Israel. An an actual king. Not just like, oh, you know, he's so great he's like a king. No. He will be, legally speaking, a king. According to the letter of the law. An actual king. That's why we say Melech HaMashiach. It's not just a honorific title. It will be his actual position. It's important to know. Anyway, that aside. So, listen to this. He's not just going to represent the Jewish people, he's going to represent the entire world. And he's not just going to represent the righteous people of the world, he's going to represent everybody in the world, including the lowest, lowest person, spiritually speaking, in the entire world. And so, his bloodline is going to give him relevance, sheikhus, if you will, to every single person under the sun. And he will be relevant and attached in a meaningful way to every single person no matter what their spiritual level is. And that's how I'd like to explain why his past is on one side super holy and on another side so strange and weird and twisted. Because he's going to represent every human being under the sun. Okay. Now, now we see, now, now we can do this Gematria. And we can do this Medresh. So the Medr says the following. So remember, we're at a point right now where Yosef has just been sold into slavery. Yehud has been demoted. He's like checked out, basically. I mean, he's not, but he's kind of doing his own thing right now. So, so but we know we're, we're, we're the, we're, we know what's about to happen. So listen to what, um, listen to what uh, the Medr says. On the words, and it was at that time, Right? That's the introductory words of this whole section with Yehud and Tamar. Right? Keep those words in mind. Okay? Those are important words. So, on the words, and it was at that time, in that time, the introduction for the narrative of the demotion of Yehuda. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman began expounding, based on the verse in Yirmiyahu quote, I know the thoughts that I think about you, the judgments I decree upon you, says Hashem. They are thoughts of peace, not for bad, to give you eternity and hope. Now, let's just pause for a moment there. You know, there are a lot of people who believe in God, but you know something? If you really want to believe in God, who we say God is, you have to believe that God is good. If you believe in God, but you don't believe God is good in the deepest recesses of your heart, you don't believe in God! I'm sorry! You can believe in some crazy power who is making you do things and you may even like doing some of those things and you may even die to do some of those things but if you want to believe in God you have to also believe that God is good and that God means good for you. And that's what the prophet Jeremiah is saying over here. I know my thoughts. This is God speaking. I know my thoughts and my judgments. And they're thoughts of peace not for bad. God is anticipating our emotional and psychological responses to, the own, to our own troubles in our own life. And we think, maybe it's for bad. Maybe God's trying to get me. So, so Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman is telling us explicitly that God says, everything that happens to you is for peace, it's for your good, it's not for bad. To give you eternity and hope. Alright, now listen to this. Here's the real point. But he's darshaning that Pesach. Okay? But now, here, here's, here's, here's the reason why I'm reading this. The shvatim, meaning the tribes, were occupied... See, again, what, what the Medrash is doing right now is it's giving us a snapshot of the moment where everything seemingly is falling apart. Everything's falling apart right now. So here's what's going on. The tribes were occupied with the selling of Yosef. Yosef was occupied with his sackcloth and fasting. He was mourning his fate, right? He's going down into slavery. Reuben was occupied with his sackcloth and fasting. He was doing tshuva for the sin of rearranging his father's beds. Yaakov was occupied with his sackcloth and fasting. He was mourning Yosef, the death of Yosef. Yehuda was occupied with marriage. He was going on to his thing. And Hashem... What was Hashem doing at this moment? He was occupied with creating the light of King Mashiach. Wow. So because while it looks like everything is absolutely falling apart at that moment, what's going on? God is bringing Mashiach into the world. He's getting Yehuda together with Tamar, and He's bringing the progenitor of David and Melech into the world. Now with that in mind, listen to this awesome, 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 Gematria from Rabbi Wolfson. Just pulling it up here. So remember, I told you to remember these words. Vayhi be'esahi. It was in that time. Those are the beginning words of the entire chronicle of the chapter with Yehuda and Tamar. So the Gematria of Vayhi be'esahi equals HaMelech HaMashiach Ben David. Right? 524 they both equal. And Rabbi Wilson says the Torah hints to us not to be dismayed as we read further. It's all a plan to bring Mashiach. Right? So, what's amazing just just from a, just from a spectator standpoint here, if you want to just appreciate yet again how awesome the Torah is, Here's a medrash, I don't know how old this medrash is, 1,500 years, 2,000 years old, you know? And here, a contemporary sage is showing you mathematically how this teaching is is working within the psukim. You know? I mean, amazing. Amazing, really. So, I'm sorry, what F equals 524? V'hi ba'es ha'hi? That's the opening that's... Um, Chapter 38, verse 1 in yeah. gracious Genesis, um, equals... I have to pull it up again. Hamelach ha-Mashiach, HaMashiach ben David. Right? King Mashiach, the son of David, from the Davidic line. Okay. I mean, this is the process. This, this ace is the process. This time is the process. That what's coming at this time is the bringing out of Mashiach. That all these events that are going on right now are only there in order to bring out Mashiach. And by the way, let's just mention it now. Famous Torah from the Bnei Yisaskar. That the dreidel, which just seems like a little children's toy, right? So deep, right? So many amazing things about it. That it says that there are different letters on it. Um, uh, what is it? What do, how does it go? Nays. <laughs> Gadol Haya Sham. If you take the first letters of that, which are the letters on, on the dreidel itself, Nes Nun, Gadol Gimel, Haya Hey, Sham Shin, it adds up to three hundred and fifty-eight, which is the gematria of Mashiach. This is the light of, the light of, the light of Mashiach. Okay, so now I want to just say tell you a story that happened to me related to gematria in the hand of Hashem, and I want to talk about Hanukkah tell you another story from work. So, listen to this. It's Friday. I have to run errands. I'm at the bank, and I'm with my son, uh, my 10-year-old. And, um, and I just learned a teaching in the name of the Bnei Yisachar, who is one of the, the masters of Gamatria. Again, what's Gamatria? It's, um, it's showing how, you know, the Torah is working on so many wavelengths. The Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. And gematria is just one of the wavelengths of the infinite aspect of the Torah, and it's talking mathematically. And you can see mathematically how basically the DNA of this is connected to that, and all sorts of amazing uh, connections and insights into the infinity of of God. So, anyway, i mentioned it different times, and and uh, one there, there are different methods, different holy methodologies of gematria. One of them is called gematria im Hakolel. What that means is, is that a number which is one off from another number, a word that has a particular number, that's one off from another word, so let's say 732, 731, for instance, right? Those numbers are considered the same. Now, those people who don't understand how this works and the seriousness and the holiness of this say, eh, so you fudge it, eh, you add one, eh. and it's 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 very disrespectful because these are these are holy things that have been known and embraced by all our gedolim. This is one of the languages of Torah. So so this past week I learned something beautiful which is from, I learned in the name of the Bnei Saskar, where do you see mina Torah, from the Torah itself, that Gematri Im is an approved methodology? Where do you see it? So, so the Bnei Saskar points out that when Yaakov, in Parshat Vayechi, it's coming up, that when Yaakov blesses Ephraim in Menashe, okay, he says to Yosef, he says, you know, these are my grandchildren, right? Because these are Yosef's children. Ephraim and Manasseh are my grandchildren, but I'm going to count them like they were my own kids. So they're going to have the full status of the tribes. You know? So that's, that's cool. So now, he goes on to say, if you, if you look at the gematria of Ephraim the Manasseh, it's the same, because, just, just uh, let's backtrack a moment. What Yaakov says is, Ephraim and Menasheh are going to be like Ruvain and Shimon to me. Which are the first two sons, the two eldest sons of, of Yaakov. Okay? So the gematria of Ephraim and Menashe is one away from Reuven and Shimon. Just one off. Right? So, so there, and, and Yaakov says, they're going to be, they're going to be, they're going to be the same to me. They're going to be, it uses the prefix k, like. So, Ephraim and Manasseh, k, Ruven Vishimen. They're one off, but Yaakov Evinu says, they're the same. They have the same status. Generationally, yeah. So, but here you see the methodology of gamatri ima in in the Torah itself. So now I'm standing at the I'm standing in the by the bank teller and we're waiting and I'm with my son and I'm telling him what I just told you, right? And there's this very sweet guy, this spartan guy. He's not wearing a kippah, but you can see he's like part of the community and a beautiful guy, shining guy. And he's probably in his, I don't know, late 20s. And he hears me telling my my 10-year-old what I just told you. And then he turns to us and he makes a big smile. And he says, says, you're getting a lesson at the bank. Right? And I thought to myself, he's not getting a lesson. We're just talking. You know? (laughs) This is... We're just talking. Um, But anyway, I didn't say anything. I said, yeah, yeah, you know. All right. So now, meanwhile... Meanwhile, Mendy, that's my son, is working on his own gematria, which uh, he came up with, which is, it says, Yaakov says to his sons, you've got to go down into Egypt, and you've got to get some food. So it says, Radu Shama, go down there, meaning go down to Egypt and get food. So look at the Rashi, What is Rashi it says, Radu, um, Resh Daladvav. Is Gamatria two hundred and ten? That's how many years we were enslaved in Egypt. so So prophetically, Yaakov is saying when you go down to Egypt, that's how long you're going to actually be in Egypt. But then the next word, which 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 the balaturm doesn't comment on, and uh, Rashi doesn't comment, comment on is shama, go down there. Shama is osios, is the letters Moshe. That's the next word. So my son said, look, after 210 years comes Moshe to come and take them out. So, that's a great Torah. It's a fantastic Torah. Again, you see how God embedded the past, the future. All these things are happening simultaneously in the Torah. If you know how to look. So, so, And then he said, is that like a known Torah? Like that the next word after the period of time is Moshe? Right? If you change around the letters, it's Moshe. So, and of course, it's the same gematria. I said, well, listen, we have to check the Balatorim. Because the Balatorim is really the great repository. It's about a thousand years old. And it's got tons and tons of gematrious in it. So, so, um, so we're in the bank and we're walking out of the bank. And I said, you know, I've got on my phone, I've got the Balatorum. Because the great the great thing about these these phones today is you can have a whole library. I've got a whole library on my phone. I've got Shas, I've got Tanakh, I've got Medrish, I've got the Zohar, I've got books from the Noam El and the Kutzkarebi. I mean, it's amazing what you um, what you can get on your phone. So 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 I've got I've got the Ramchal you know, so we're sitting in the car, and this is right after I've told him about the gematria makola, about Reuven and Shimon equals Ephraim and Menashe. You it's m- maybe well, can you explain it more um, w- with the holes. Meaning, I think I think that technically means that you add one for the word itself. For word I mean, are, are the word itself. So it's just it's it's the name it's the name of the system of gematria, which means that two words which are one apart are the same, can, can be called having the same gematria. Something else, 56 and 57, that's the same. The, the spiritual DNA of those two words are the same, even though they're one apart. And here's how we, the B'nai Saskar is saying how we derive the methodology of it, is that Yaakov Avinu says that Ephraim and Manasha is going to be like even though my, they're my grandchildren, like my first two sons, Ruven v'Shemin. So he's equating these two sets, and they're only one apart numerically. And yet Yaakov says they're going to be the same. So you see, you see the methodology there. Okay. So, so we sit in the car, and I, and I say to my son, here, I'm going to drive. You pull up, pull up the Balatorum, and look to see if your gematria is in the Balatorum. Right? This is a separate thing. So he comes up, and it's, it's, uh, it was on the par- portion of the week. And he doesn't quite know how to use the, use the... And I'm thinking this is that what I just told you is from the Bnei Yisaskar. Right? That thing about Reuven and Shemin and Fram and Menashe. So he hits the forward button. So he's just skipping parshas. He doesn't realize it. And seconds later, this is now about really like 90 seconds after we're talking about this in the bank. He says, look, it says here in the Balaturim, Ephraim and Manasha are going to be the same as Reuven and Shimon. And he pulled it up out of nowhere from the Balaturim. It's in the Balatorum. The explanation of what the meaning of that is on a deeper level, the Bnei Saskar adds. But that Gamatria, like I don't want to use the word magically appeared on the phone seconds later, where I never even knew in a million years that it was in the Baloturum. But all of a sudden there it is, seconds later. And how did he arrive at it? Because he doesn't know how to press the buttons. And there it is staring him out of the face. When you learn Torah, you, you know, you have a, you have a when you're learning Torah. You know who that is? God! God is learning with you! You think you're just sitting in front of a book? You're learning with God! And God says, oh yeah, you know something? I, you know, I'm so happy that you're giving such covet to the B'nai Saskar, but you know something? Just check, look in the bottom. <laughs> No, just keep your sources straight, because I love you, and I don't want you to, for shame, the bolitorum, God forbid. Right? Just take a look. You know, I mean, that that teaching should come up at that moment is is impossible. Did you find your No, no. So that's <laughs> still up for grabs. That's, we can still say that in Mendy's name for now. So, so, so you see, it's like Rips Shlomo said one time, made a lasting impression on me. People understand intuitively how far we are away from Hashem. But the greatest Kiddush Hashem a person can make, the greatest sanctification of God's name, is for people to understand how close God is to us. That's that's what we need in our generation. And I actually think, this is me talking right now, but I actually think that this technological revolution that's going on in terms of the zeitgeist, that that actually is distancing us from Hashem in a lot of ways because more and more a person can say I can do this and I can do that and I can do this and I can do that and My even though iPad right yeah yeah that's Rabbi Sachs pointed that out right I, it's called the iPhone the iPad and believe me you know these things are these things are not simple you can go, oh yeah that's what they call it. It, they're not simple just give it another moment's thought. The idea of the egocentricity of it. How it cultivates a sense of self-sufficiency. Which is antithetical to the message of Torah. Which is that God fills the entire universe. God fills every cell in your body. Right? God is so close. Okay. So, So now, we'll just wrap it up. Let me just uh, tell you this story. Something that happened at work, but just it's, uh, it's about um, Hanukkah also. Okay? So let me just introduce the idea. So, so you have to understand something, which is that we have 613 mitzvahs. By the way, where do we learn that we have 613 mitzvahs from? From a gematria. The Gomorrah learns it out from a gematria, because the gematria of the word Torah is 611. And the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments were said by Hashem. So, 611 plus 2 equals 613. A lot of people don't understand the centrality of Gematria in terms of how embedded it is in terms of our Masorah. You know? But anyway, that aside. So, we have 613 mitzvahs plus 7 mitzvahs derabanan. Okay? Things that the rabbis added so, so, what are those seven? Let's see if I can get through them. Bruchas, those are, those are blessings. Candle lighting. Washing of the hands. Um, Eruv, Hallel. Purim. And Hanukkah. That's seven. So, historically, the last thing that was added for eternity was Hanukkah. So, 613 from the written Torah, 7 from the oral Torah, that adds up to 620. Fascinatingly, and the Bala brings this, of course, if you look at the Aseros Adibros, the, the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Ten Commandments in the Torah itself, it's 620 letters, which correlates perfectly with the number of commands. An amazing correlation. Now listen to what Rabbi Wolfson says, Right? Just you gotta want to hug him and kiss him for this. So that means the last letter of the giving of the Torah, in terms of the verses in the Torah itself, should correlate with the six hundred twentieth mitzvah, which is Hanukkah. So what's the last letter of the giving of the Torah? Chaf. Ha, and what's the first letter of Hanukkah? Chaf. Ha, Hanukkah. And but even better than that, it's a chaf sofit meaning it's a, a final, because appropriately it's a 620th, but not, that's not what he points out. What he points out is that if you draw a final chaf, that it goes below the line. Not all the final letters go below the line. This goes below the line. What's that hinting at? That the light of Hanukkah descends below ten tfachim, I'll explain that in a moment, ten tfachim to the darkest places. It's lighting up the darkest places in the world. So all these things are hinted at in terms of the correlation of the oral law and the written law and, the, and, and all the mitzvahs of the Torah and the actual dynamics of the holiday itself. Amazing. The perfection of the Torah. The perfection of God. Unbelievable. Okay. So what's this whole tentfakan thing? So a tefach is a hand's breadth. So in terms of just kind of spiritual physics here right now, we've got this teaching. It's in Gamora Sukkah that the Shekhinah doesn't descend below ten ten hands breaths. Where do we get that from? The fact that it says that, you know, there's... All of creation, by the way, is an ongoing conversation between us and God. You should know. It's an ongoing conversation between us and God. It didn't stop at Mount Sinai. It didn't stop at the end of prophecy. It's ongoing, okay? When God would speak to Moshe, He spoke to Moshe between the wings of the Kruvim, the golden angels on top of the Kodesh, the ark that contained the Ten Commandments. Okay? The ark itself was ten handbreadths tall, and it says that Hashem spoke to Moshe from on top of the ark, from the, in between the wingspans on top of the ark. That's above ten tvachim. So from this, the sages derive that Hashem doesn't descend below ten tvachim, ten handbreadths into the world. Based on this, we have a very holy custom that when you light the Hanukkah menorah, you light it below ten t'vachim. That's the ideal place to light, showing that revealing the oneness of God even in the lowest of places, even in the darkest of places. That's the idea. Okay. Now, with that in mind, I want to tell you this story. So, this past week was the first night of Hanukkah, and I was at work, and I'm on the show that's taping... uh, at Paramount, one of the big studios, actually, in, in the soundstage that Frazier taped in, and Cheers taped in this one soundstage. So this one soundstage has probably won as or more Emmys than maybe, than than any other soundstage probably in, in all of Hollywood, you know? So that's, it's a, it's a special place, you know? And uh, we just happened to be taping our show there. And uh, it's the first night of Hanukkah. It's the Night of the 25th of Kislev. Remember, we've been saying over this teaching, it's such a good teaching. Rabbi Wolfson brings it from the Zohar that there are 25 letters in the verse Shema Yisrael Shemalokeno Shemachad, and that correlates with the 25th day of Kislev, which is the first day of Hanukkah. Right? So, the 25th day of Kislev, Hanukkah is Shema Yisrael Shemalokeno Shemachad, meaning even in the darkest places, God's light is shining. Okay? twenty fifth letter of the torah is or I mean yeah or and the, right and or. the and the twenty fifth word of the torah if you start from in the beginning right phraseshid is the word or which means light, so you know it's the system is perfect all right, so now I said to my boss, wonderful fantastic person whose name I kid you not is David Melech Yisrael, right <laughs> so an an awesome 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 person Which show is that? and and I, I i say i say to him i say you know we're we're you know it's now nightfall it's the 25th day of kislev it's now hanukkah we're on the stage there's cameramen and actors and producers and parents and writers and everyone is there right so it's a big crap and i said to him do you want to like the hanukkah menorah right like that's you know that would be something you know yeah. And he says to me, uh, yeah. And I said, great. And then I thought to myself, where am I going to get a menorah? (laughs) I don't have a menorah. And then I remembered something. Which is a few weeks before, we had done, the network had uh, requested a Christmas episode. So we just done a Christmas episode where everyone uh, gets trapped into a department store over Christmas. And they're fighting and they learn to get along with each other, so that's the Christmas spirit and everything like this. Nice episode. And uh, I wasn't really involved in the writing of that episode because um, I was working on another episode at the time. You know, but all the writers come together when they have what's called a table read. That's um, the beginning of production where, you know, you've been working on the script and you've got notes from the studio, notes from the network, and now the script is ready to go into production. And all the actors sit around they read it. And so even if you haven't been working on the script... You have to be there for that because that's the real sign of whether the script is in good shape or not. You know, that's when the real um, essential rewriting takes place. Because now words are meeting actor, you know. So uh, we get back to the writing room and I'm like, hey, there's no mention of Hanukkah in this whole script. And normally speaking, I have to say, I'm not very forward in that way on the shows that I've been on, I, 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 I don't present myself as a, as, a, as a religion cop. The opposite. The opposite. I'm very mellow. I don't really discuss these things. If anyone wants to discuss them with me, I'm happy to discuss them, but I'm there to do a job, and I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the rabbi. First of all, I'm not a rabbi, and I'm not the rabbi, that's for sure. So, whatever. I, I, I'm very lucky in these settings. But, for some reason, it really irked me that there was no mention of Hanukkah in this episode. And so I, I asked the writers what's going on, and they said, well, you know, we thought about it, and just it didn't happen. And so I said, well, you know, we should try to put it in. So I mentioned it to, the, to David <laughs> who was who was on board. He was like, yeah, put it in. And I thought, okay, well, let's see. The easiest way to do it is to make one of the characters Jewish, So, one of the characters is absolutely Jewish, uh, in real life, and so we thought, okay, we'll make him Jewish, and everything like that. So, during the gift-giving part of the episode, they give him a menorah, and they give him a menorah, and he lights the menorah. So, I was happy about that, because, you know, people all over the world are going to see that episode, and, you know, there will be a moment where they'll be able to connect, you know, the the Jews in the audience will be able to connect, and that, that, God willing, you know. So I think to myself, I'm on the set because now we're finishing the day's production. We're we're about to break. And I'm thinking, oh, the props department has a menorah because of that episode, which we just did a few weeks ago. So I go up to the props guys. Now you have to understand props guys, okay? There are all sorts of departments on a set. You know, to make a show is like a very... You know, if you want to do it in a real Hollywood way, it's a, it's a big deal. you got... Lots of departments. Hair, makeup, all, all sorts of departments. One of the departments is props. Those things didn't just get on the shelf. When you watch an episode, those books didn't just get on the shelf. You know, Those, those pictures, those didn't, they didn't just get on the wall. Everything is chosen very carefully, and you've got a props department. Okay, And these props guys are specialists. They know how and where to get anything. Like I was joking around, I was saying, saying if you go up to one of the guys and go, you know, I need a stuffed donkey head. They'll go, oh, okay, let me think. Let me think. Um, okay, there's this place in Burbank. <laughs> and they'll tell you. They can find anything. They're amazing. That, well, That's their profession. So I go up to the props guys, and I say, hey, do you have the menorah? Thinking this shouldn't be so hard. And they're like, we had four menorahs, and we had to return them all. We rented them. And we returned all of them. And I said, are you sure? Can you check and they checked, and they came back, and they said, yeah, they're not here. And I thought to myself, where am I going to get a menorah? And then the guy says to me, there's a place, a party store, just a few blocks from here. They should have one. And if they don't have one, not so far from here, there's a bed, bath, and beyond. And you should you should know, that, which is like, neither of these guys are Jewish, by the way, these profs guys, you know? They both kind of look like truckers, you know? And... They're like, Bed Bath and Beyond, I definitely saw a menorah there. Now, that's kind of like a, a linen place, you know, like a, like a department store, like, you know. So, but that's further away. It's close, but it's further away. I'm thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it, especially since my car is parked about 10 blocks from, from where I am at that moment, anyway. So I think the party store. So I call up the party store, and they're like, yeah, we got three different kinds of menorahs. I'm like, fantastic. Get to the car, drive over there. And then I'm looking at the menorahs, and there's one that's like very pretty. It's really like, like an art piece. Like a ceramic, painted, like very funky. I'm like, it was more money. I was like, you know, but there's a concept of hiddur Mitzvah, mm-hmm. making the mitzvah more beautiful. I'm like, got to do it. So I get that, and then they've got these very artistic candles, multicolor Hanukkah candles, so I buy those. And then I see next to that, they've got buckets of dreidels. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, it would be awesome if I can give out dreidels, you know. So they've got really simple ones, and they've got one that's like a little more expensive, but they're like, like silver, like shiny silver paint and shiny metallic blue paint. And I'm like, oh, I got to get those. So you know, I get it, like a big, you know, handful of those. Buy it all. Hop back in the car. Get back to the set. Right as they're wrapping. Okay, they're just finishing now. And I, I said to David, I said, you know, can we eat light, you know? Do you still want to light? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. You know, so we go to a place, they're serving food, and there's a, there's a table in front of that. But there's, um, which would be the perfect place to light, by the way, because it's like right where everyone is. Except there's a Christmas tree on it. So someone, I, I didn't say anything, someone just says, hey, we got, what's that doing there? So they i don't even know if this person was Jewish, not Jewish, whatever it was he was just trying to help out. He grabs a Christmas tree and breaks it in half not not on purpose, you know, but it was just striking, and then picks it up and removes it and then we put the menorah over there, it was one of those metal ones that are like tubular, so you know it could be repaired but we we put the we put the menorah over there and we lit the menorah and the Jews on the set kind of gathered around and I was so proud of everyone they all knew the bruchas by heart you know it was really very impressive and we all sang them and everyone was gathered around and it was such an awesome thing and then I started giving out dreidels you know <laughs> which was like this great moment like people were like you know this thing they cost i think 55 cents each but they were, they're were they beautiful, you know what I mean? And we just said there's like a Gematria Mashiach on it, and they were shiny, glittering things, and it's like someone had something in their hand to hold on to afterwards, you know? And, and, uh, and here's the thing that really got me, though. Here's the thing that really got me. The table that we lit on was below ten hands-breadths. That's the thing that just thought to me, wow, yeah, that's it. That's it, man. That's it. That's it. Did you have light? Yeah. We lit. We lit. One of the actors lit. The, the guy who lit in the, uh, in the show lit. The Jewish actor. He lit. And, uh, you know, and uh, it was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful moment. So, let's just wrap it up. I'll just tell you this uh, last thing. Friday night, on one side of the uh, Shabbos table was the Shabbos candles. On the other side of the Shabbos table were the Hanukkah candles, and I was sitting in between, and I thought to myself, this area in between, the Shabbos candles and the Hanukkah candles, this is a microcosm of all of human history. Because there you have the Shabbos candles, is the seventh day, that's the beginning of creation, right? And then, the Hanukkah candles behind me, that's the number eight, eight days of Hanukkah, that stands for Mashiach, that's the end of creation, and here we are sitting in the middle. And so God should bless us that we should do our jobs. You know, we should attach ourselves to Him with love. We should understand wherever we go, He's learning with us. He's guiding us. He's loving us. And just we should just have the best Hanukkah, the best everything. Okay. Amen.